All right, so during his famous Sermon on the Mount, our Lord Jesus Christ said this. He said, you are the light of the world. He's speaking to his disciples. He's speaking to those who've made a choice to follow him. He says, you are the light of the world. And then a little later in the Sermon on the Mount, he says, let your light shine. Let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father in heaven. And so Christ called his followers the light of the world, and then he exhorted those followers to let their light shine. And so I'm just interested um, this morning at our 11 a.m. service, uh, how many of you, by raising your hand, would say, you know, I'm not perfect, but I consider myself a follower of Jesus Christ. Please raise your hand. I'm gonna raise my hand as well. And so, here's what the Lord wants us to do. He wants us to shine. And he wants us to shine brightly. And so before we can shine, we have to answer this question. From where does our light come? And I wanna think about this today in terms of the sun and the moon. All right, we all know that the sun gives light to the earth during the day, the moon gives light to the earth during the night. But here's the question. Does the moon really have any light of its own? No. It's not like there's uh, some big great radiant light within the moon and there's an astronaut up there and every night in communication with Houston, all right, you ready? One, two, three, lunar switch on, right? And the moon just boop, right? No, there's no light inside of the moon. Therefore, if the moon could talk, it could not say, hey, everybody on earth, look at me. Look how awesome I am. Aren't I impressive? I have this radiant light so that you guys can make your way um, in the dark of night. No, the, the moon can't say that. Rather, ladies and gentlemen, the moon is just a rock in space and it's orbiting our planet. Now, don't get me wrong. There's many things that are very special about the moon. That spherical rock that's some 240,000 miles away from our planet. The moon's gravitational force, you know this, right? Creates our tides. And not only that, that same gravitational pull stabilizes the Earth's tilt angle as it's spinning on its axis. It's, it's very interesting to me as I was reading about the moon this week that it's the right size, it's the right shape, and it's the right distance away for us on Earth to enjoy a stable environment. By the way, that's just a few of the hundreds and hundreds of arguments that argument for intelligent design. Okay, and so that's another message for another time, but the moon is special for a lot of different reasons, but one of the greatest reasons that it's so special, you know this, is because it reflects the light of the sun. And so how many of us, right, have gone out in the evening and we've seen what's called a supermoon just over the horizon, maybe just over the Atlantic or whatever, and we've just stared, right, how gorgeous is that? So again, why is the moon so awesome? Because it has some kind of light of its own? No, it's awesome because it reflects the light of the sun. Now some of you are thinking, where are you going with this? I think you know where I'm going with this. Jesus Christ said in John 8, 12, in fact, let's all say it together, go ahead. 
Jesus is the light of the world. Ladies and gentlemen, as Pastor Will said, as we opened the service, and I wanna encourage you guys, come early for our services because we moved the announcements to the beginning instead of in the middle, uh, so you guys are missing out. So, so as Pastor Will said in the very beginning as he walked out on this stage, this church is all about Jesus Christ. So true. Jesus said, I am the light of the world. Therefore, the answer to the question, from where do Christians get our light, the answer is very simply, we get our light from Jesus. He's like the sun, we're like the moon, and that leads us to our big idea for the day. The big idea is just as the moon reflects the light of the S-U-N, so we are to reflect the light of the S-O-N. The question is why? Why in the world do we need to reflect the light of Christ? And here's the answer, because we have no spiritual light of our own. Just like the moon has no physical light of its own, so you and I, as sons and daughters of Adam, you and I, as fallen human beings, we have no spiritual light of our own. Therefore, we need the light of the world. We need the Lord Jesus Christ to redeem us redeemed by the blood of the lamb, and then we need him to shine on us. And as we do that, right, we reflect his light to a bunch of people who are walking in darkness. And that can make all the difference in the world. What kind of difference can it make? Well, just like the picture shows, we can become that light that reflects Christ to our family, to our friends, to our fellowship. So the question is, are you like the moon? Now, I was gonna ask, are you a moony? <laughs> I'm not gonna ask that because we all know what that group is all about and we're not part of that group at all. Now, in our passage today, uh, Paul, under the inspiration of the Spirit, in verse 15, is gonna challenge the Philippians to shine, to shine in a dark world. We're gonna receive that challenge as well because how many of you guys really believe that, that the Bible is been, has been inspired by God? In fact, here's what we know. There are 66 books, 39 in the old, 27 in the new. There's some 40 authors written on three continents in Hebrew, Greek, and a little bit of Aramaic. And as these holy men of God uh, spoke and as they wrote, graphe, the scriptures, that, as Peter said, they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. This is, in the original manuscripts, the breathed out word of God. And so what we're reading here as New Covenant Christians, part of a local church which was birthed on the day of Pentecost, we have the scriptures, thank God, and what we're reading here is instructions for our lives. And the reason I'm saying all this is because I know we have new people every week and they're like, what is this all about? Well, we're telling you right now what this is all about, what we're all about. And so um, we're gonna see that Paul's gonna challenge the Philippians and us to shine as lights in a dark world. And so before we get to verse 15, there's a couple other verses that we have to, pre that, that precede it, that we have to get through, right? Because we are a verse by verse church. So right now, if you're looking at Philippians chapter two, verse 12, can you say amen so I know you're there? All right, so look at verse 12, he says, therefore. And so you've heard me say, and probably other preachers too, whenever you see the word therefore, you ask, what is that therefore? Well, it's there to tie in what he just said with what he's gonna say. 
And so we're in verse 12, go back one verse. In verse 11, Jesus Christ is Lord. Therefore, because Jesus is Lord, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only in my presence when I'm there in Philippi, but much more in my absence when I'm here tied to Brutus, the Roman soldier, under house arrest in Rome, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. He wants them to obey, not just when he's around, but more so when he's away. Why? Because, ladies and gentlemen, the true test of character is not what you do when people are watching. The true test of character is what do you and what do I do when no one's watching? That's the true test of character. And by the way, Jesus Christ, verse 11, is Lord, and he's always watching. And so we need to obey. We need to let our light shine. Now, Paul says, work out your own salvation. Please notice he didn't say, work for your salvation in terms of earning it. No. No, no, no. He said, work out your salvation, which has to do with Christian growth. That leads you to your next point, if you're taking notes today, and that is, we can never work for our salvation. Please get that. I know this is new for some people. I'm so glad you're having the opportunity in your life to hear this right here. This is truth. We can never work for our salvation, but we must work out our salvation. There's a difference between the English term for and the English term out. None of us can work for our salvation in terms of trying to earn it. Why? Because salvation is offered to us as a free gift of God. You say, where's that at? Ephesians 2, 8, and 9. Check it out. Paul said, for by grace you have been saved through faith. You guys wonder, why is pastor always saying by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone? Right here. This is why. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the, please shout out the next three words. Gift of God. Not a result of works. Not as a result of works. And in case you're thinking about lunch, not a result of works. You guys heard it, right? So that no one may boast. And so when our three daughters were growing up, we loved Christmas morning. My wife and I are empty nesters. We still like Christmas morning, but, but man, it was so much fun when our three daughters were kids. They're all grown now, adults. They have um, great husbands and great families, and we're blessed, at least right now, to have all of them here, and it's such a blessing. Um, but when they were growing up, we loved Christmas morning. We made a big deal about it. And our rule in our home was on Christmas morning, the kids cannot come into, out of their rooms, right, and into the, the, the kitchen and the living room where the tree is until they hear Christmas music. You say, why? So that at 5 a.m. there's no little kids jumping on your bed, right? You say, that's mean. No, that's smart, okay? And so they're in their rooms Christmas morning, and when my wife and I get up around 11 a.m. or so, no, I'm kidding, I'm kidding. Um, whatever, 7 a.m., right? 
we, we turn on the Christmas music and we're all ready. She turns on the Christmas music and then I'm ready with the camera because as the girls are coming out of the hallway into the kitchen, I'm snapping them with their cute little pajamas, right? And then we, they, they go to the tree and as they're sitting around the tree and they're eagerly anticipating opening their gifts, here's what my wife and I never did. We did not give them a long lecture about the chores. Now, yes, they had chores, but we didn't, on Christmas morning, as they're sitting with their gifts, give them a long lecture about the chores they needed to do to earn those gifts. We didn't say, Megan, all right, um, you know that, that gift that you have right there? You're gonna have to clean the bathroom five times for that one. And, and Mandy, you know, you're gonna have to vacuum that floor 10 times for that one. And Mary, oh man, that's a big gift, and you're gonna have to scoop the poop in the backyard for a whole year, right, to earn that one. No, we didn't do that, why? because we love our kids and the gifts are a free gift to them. Ladies and gentlemen, we have a Father in heaven that loves us more than you could ever know and he wants to give a free gift. It's called salvation. It's a gift. All right? And some of you are still not convinced and you're thinking, do I have to work for that gift? All right, so don't listen to me. Listen to the Apostle Paul. Romans chapter four, now the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but as his due. And to the one who does not work, but, what's the next three words? It's Jesus Christ. Believes in him who justifies, I like that term, I'll define it in a moment, who justifies the ungodly, his Faith, can you guys say the word faith? faith? Faith is counted as righteousness. Love it. And so when someone turns from their sins, right, to Jesus Christ alone, believing that he paid for their sins on the cross and rose again, and they receive Christ as the Savior and Lord of their life, listen, it's their faith by God's grace that justifies them. The word justification means to declare righteous. Now everybody in our church family here watching, please know the definition of justification. Please memorize it. It means to be declared righteous. So that when you and I place our faith in Jesus Christ, God the Father declares righteous, 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 and he clothes us in the righteousness of Jesus Christ. And so now when the Father looks at us positionally, he doesn't see our tattered robes of self-righteousness because all of our righteousness are filthy rags. He sees the glowing, gleaming, beautiful, sparkling, white, uh, righteous robe of Jesus Christ and Christ's righteousness, right? And God accepts us on that basis and that basis only. We are his children, that is the gospel. You got to know the gospel. Now, as we continue to think about this, after justification by faith alone, then it's time for what's called sanctification. Then it's time to work out our salvation. I love what John MacArthur said about this. He said the Greek verb rendered work out means to continually work, to bring something uh, to fulfillment or completion. It cannot refer to salvation by works. He's dead on right there. 
We just read it, Ephesians 2, 8, 9, Romans chapter four. It cannot refer to salvation by works, but it does refer to the believer's responsibility for active pursuit of obedience in the process of, what's that word there? Sanctification. And so you're justified in a moment of time, your faith in Jesus Christ, God declares you righteous, and now you're saved. And now what happens? Now there's this whole lifelong process of sanctification where we work out our salvation. Let me illustrate it in terms of a gym. Let's say a friend of yours gives you a free membership to a gym. Now for some of you, you're like, this really is not hitting me, Pastor. I don't really care about the gym. In fact, I'll never darken the door of the gym. Well, just stay with me for a little while, okay? And so let's say your friend gives you a free membership. Hey, I love you. Here's a free membership to whatever, whatever fitness center. What a great gift. And so you receive the gift and now you have unlimited access to the free weights, to the fitness machines, to the lap pool, to the basketball court. All right, question. Did you have to work for your membership? Yes or no? No. So I only got about half of you to respond to that, so I'm gonna ask that again. It's a free membership. Did you have to work for your membership? No. no, it was paid in full by your friend. But shouldn't you work out your membership? Shouldn't you get in there and start moving and start pushing and swimming, right? And uh, shooting some hoops or climbing the stair climber or whatever? Shouldn't you work out your salvation? Yes, and as you work out your salvation, your physical health will improve. Ladies and gentlemen, hear this. Our salvation has been paid in full by the blood of Jesus Christ. Yeah. Done deal. Done deal. And that should motivate us to work it out. Work it out. And as we do that, as we follow the teachings of Jesus Christ, our spiritual health will improve and we will grow in our faith. Now, before any of you say, I'm ready, Pastor. I'm ready to work out my salvation. You know, where's that Sermon on the Mount that you opened up the sermon with? Is that Matthew 5, 6, and 7? I'm gonna go home, I'm gonna read it. All three chapters, all those red letters, I'm gonna start living it out. Oh, number one, I wanna applaud you. Praise God you have that attitude. But number two, I wanna just hold you for a second and tell you before you do that, you need to know something. Okay, so praise God you have that attitude that you actually wanna read, for example, the Sermon on the Mount and live it out and let your light shine so that people can see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven, right? That's great, but before you do that, you need to read verse 13. Verse 13, here's the key. For it is, what's the word there? God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. It's God. Oh man, you gotta get this because so many people, right, they get saved, they become a Christian and then they want to um, um, live the Christian life but they're doing it in their own strength, they're doing it in their own power and it doesn't last very long. So, so please get verse 13. I'm gonna illustrate it back with the free membership at the gym, right? You get the free membership, you enter the gym, and let's say you go to the bench press, and I don't recommend that you, you know, do this much weight for your first time around, but you're at the bench press, 
and let's say you've worked up to this and now you are uh, bench pressing 225 pounds and you do it eight times. And the eighth time you're struggling and you're, your arms are shaking and your face is turning red. Well, thank the Lord that there's a spotter behind you who helps you get that weight back up on the rack. And so ladies and gentlemen, hear this. The Holy Spirit is our spotter. In the sanctification process, as we're working out our salvation, the Holy Spirit of God is our spotter and he doesn't just stand behind us, the Holy Spirit of God lives inside of us. This is so good. I mean, what more could God do than what he's done for us? It leads you to your next point, and that is that the Holy Spirit within us gives us the desire and the power to accomplish God's will and grow in our faith. Paul said, 1 Corinthians 6, 19, what, know ye not that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God, and you're not your own? And so as new covenant believers in Jesus Christ, we got it, it made in the shade compared to the old covenant people because the old covenant people in the Old Testament, the spirit would come and go, come and go, empower, leave, empower, leave. We're under the new covenant and guess what? The Holy Spirit comes and he seals us into the day of redemption and he makes our body a temple of the Holy Spirit and that's permanent. God in you, the hope of glory if you've come to Christ. Jesus said, the helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all things that I have said to you. Jesus later, the risen Christ, Acts 1.8, told his disciples, you shall receive power, dunamis, dynamite power. You will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you and you'll be witnesses unto me in Jerusalem, all Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. And so again, when we turn from our sins and turn to Christ alone as the Savior and Lord of our lives, the Spirit of God comes inside of us. And then what happens? Well, then he's called our helper. He helps us. And then he's called our teacher. He teaches us. He's called our enabler. He enables us. And not just that, he gives us the want to, according to Philippians 2.13, the want to and the fortitude to carry out the will of God in our lives. What more could God have done than what he's done? The problem is most of the church doesn't know all this stuff because they're not reading the Bible. They're not studying the Bible. And so, I love what Chuck Swindoll um, said about this. By the way, he's uh, one of those faithful, older guys, just a great ministry. I heard he's got a study Bible that's out now. But he said this, he said, we're able to work out this salvation in real obedience because God himself, there's the key, through his indwelling spirit is at work in us as we submit, that's an important word, ourselves to the working of his spirit, he gives us both the desire and the power to accomplish his will. All right, so what's our part? Our part in the sanctification process, work out this salvation. What is God's part? God gives us the desire, he gives us the power to carry out his will. Is this making sense to you guys? All right, so let's go to verse 14, verse 14. He says, do all things without grumbling or disputing. 
You say, Christians grumble and dispute? <laughs> Verse 15, that you may be blameless and innocent children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation, here it is, among whom you shine as lights in the world, holding fast to the word of life, so that in the day of Christ I may be proud that I did not run in vain or labor in vain. Okay, and so let's return to our illustration of the moon as we think about this. And so the big idea for the message today is just like the moon reflects the light of the S-U-N, so we as Christians are to reflect the light of the S-O-N, the, the, the Son of God, Jesus Christ. But what happens, right? Everybody look at me for a second. So here's the sun, and here's the earth, and here's the moon revolving around the earth as the earth revolves around the sun. So what happens when those three bodies, sun, earth, moon over here, all line up in a straight line? What happens is that the world gets between the sun and the moon, and if you're on this side of the world looking at the moon, what happens, ladies and gentlemen, is what's called a lunar eclipse. And so during a partial lunar eclipse, the earth partially blocks the light of the sun from reflecting off the moon. Said another way, the shadow of the world, I want you to hear that. The shadow of the world is cast over the moon and the moon's light grows dim. Now in verse 15, the Lord, through the apostle Paul, tells us he wants us to shine, to shine as lights in a dark world. But what happens in our own lives when the world, right, Here's Jesus, here's this crooked, twisted, dark world, and we're, moon, we're the moon, right? What happens when we allow the world to get between us and Jesus Christ? What happens is a spiritual lunar eclipse, and what happens is that our light grows dim. Now there's lots of worldly things that cast a shadow, or can cast a shadow over our lives. I mean, the New Testament is filled with all these sins that we see in people's lives, sins that Paul lists and Peter lists and John lists that he wants us as Christians to avoid, to repent of, and so we could go on and on and on forever, um, but Paul, um, yeah, Paul, uh, in verse 14, lists two. All right, so let's look at verse 14. We're in the context of where we are in the Bible, so let's see what two things, worldly things, can come between us and Christ. Do all things without Grumbling, can you guys say the word grumbling? Or disputing, can you say the word disputing? All right, so let's look at that. In the context, in the Greek, the term grumbling means muttering complaints. So imagine the, the person, right, they're having a hard time, they're upset, they're frustrated, they're angry, and what are they doing? They're muttering. Have you ever heard somebody muttering under their breath, right? It's like, right? That's what it means in the Greek, muttering complaints. And then you have disputing. This is a whole nother level. It's questioning, it's doubting, it's arguing. Now there's lots of people, you know, Bible commentators, and they go back and forth um, about, is he talking about grumbling and disputing with man, or is he talking about grumbling and disputing with God? 
Well, why not both, right? But I wanna think about it in terms of grumbling and disputing with God. Let's think about that for a moment. And so what happens so often in a Christian's life is they get smacked with a storm. Man, they get hit with a trial. And then another trial. And then maybe another trial, right? And what happens so often is that their equilibrium, spiritual equilibrium begins to get knocked around a little bit. And so what they're tempted to do in those situations is they're, they're tempted to begin to grumble against God. To kind of just mutter. <clears throat> they don't want to say it. They don't want to say it to you because, you know, who admits this kind of stuff to people? And by the way, uh, in the church, we're not a museum for self-righteous relics. We're a hospital for sick people. So we can be real in the church. And you can be real in your community group and share things as well. And so... Boom, get hit with a trial, and then all of a sudden, muttering against God. I can't believe this is happening. Why, God? Why did you let this happen to me? And then if it's really bad, right, then they go to a whole nother level, and they begin to dispute. They begin to question and doubt and actually argue with God, right? If you're really all-powerful, if, really, um, if you're really all-caring, then, then why in the world would this happen? I don't get this. Maybe you're not all powerful. Maybe you're not all caring. Maybe I need to become a deist instead of a theist. You know, a deist who believes that God just created everything and then went on vacation and left us all to our own devices. Maybe I, I need to become a deist instead of a theist that actually believes that God is transcendent above the space-time material universe, but he's also eminent within it, and that he's involved, and he's omnipotent, and omniscient, omnipresent, and omnibenevolent, right? Maybe I need to forget all that and just do what you know, some of our founding fathers believed. And so people think like this. They, they, they question. I've talked to people who've shaken their fist at God. Because why? They don't get it. They don't understand what's going on. And I, I wanna encourage you, when you're emotional, see, that's the problem. We get emotional, and when we become emotional, it's like a roller coaster. And when we're on a roller coaster, we begin to question the attributes of God, and we begin to question the promises of God. Ladies and gentlemen, the attributes of God and the promises of God are fixed forever. God doesn't change, God is immutable. Listen, God is there and God is always good. No matter what you're experiencing, whether you're on a high or a low, God is God. And don't forget Romans 8, 28, that all things work together for good to those who love God and to those who are called according to his purpose. So yes, he's sovereign, but I've heard Christians, I've heard Christians say, I don't want someone to quote Bible verses at me when I'm having a hard time. What? <laughs> Are you kidding? Are we Christians? Is this not the inspired, authoritative word of God? Of course, we're going to share scripture with one another. It's the prideful person, it's the arrogant person that doesn't want scripture verses to be shared with him or her when they're going through a difficult time. You got to die to yourself, I gotta die to myself, and we need to receive the engrafted word because listen, listen this is what's gonna help us get through the dark. 
This is what's gonna help us get through the storm. The fact that God is omnipotent, omniscient, omnipresent, and omnibenevolent, that's gonna help you because those attributes are fixed. God doesn't change and his promises are sure. So hold on to what's fixed. Hold on to what is sure as you're going through that difficult time. Three weeks ago or four weeks ago, I preached a message called Why God? If you were here, you remember it was just an apologetic for what in the world's God doing with us in a fallen world. So if you didn't hear it, go back and listen to it, download the podcast, however you wanna access it. But man, get that message, share it with someone who's hurting. Jesus said, I am the light of the world. And then he said, you are the light of the world. But as we've seen, that means that we need to, because we have no spiritual light of our own, reflect the light of Jesus to other people. But if we allow grumbling, and if we allow complaining, worldly things, right, to get between us and the sun, we have a spiritual lunar eclipse, our light grows dim, and we cease to shine the way we should. People look at our lives and they see more darkness than light. You say, that can happen to a Christian? Yeah. And I know I'm speaking to somebody. You're discouraged, you're depressed, and it's like you're going over the edge and you're going down the slope and it's all greased. Be careful. Here's what you need to know. I know you're going through a hard time. I know you're, you're trying to get your footing, but you're, you're, you're sliding down. Listen, Jesus Christ is leaning over that edge and his powerful hand is reaching out to you. You need to grab his hand with all that you got and let him pull you up back because here's what's gonna happen. If you don't, you're gonna go farther down and then you're gonna become darker and you're gonna become darker Now, I personally believe, this is my theological conviction, no one who's truly born again can lose their salvation. You can debate me on that later, but but, but listen, it's still true. We can become darker, and we we can become darker. So here's my question, if, if I'm talking to somebody today. Do you really want your spouse to see more darkness than light? Do you really want your kids, dad, mom, to see more darkness than light? No. So grab the hand of Jesus, let him pull you up, and then begin to just completely reflect his light to others. It's your choice, but his hand is always there. You just need to grab it. Look at verse 17. He says, even if I am to be poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith. I'm glad and rejoice with you all. Likewise, you also should be glad and rejoice with me. Hey, what in the world is Paul talking about now? Well, in Old Testament times, when a person would bring a lamb or a ram or a bull to the first, the tabernacle, right? And then later in Israel's history, the temple. When that, we're talking about old covenant stuff here, all right? So when that, that Hebrew, that Israelite, 
brought the lamb, right, or brought the ram, or brought the bull to the priest at the brazen altar at the tabernacle or later the temple. What was he doing? He was doing an act of worship, and along with the animal, he also brought a drink offering, lower part of your screen. Basically, he brought some wine with him. And then during the ceremony, you can read all about it later in Numbers 15, one through 10, when the priest sacrificed the animal as a burnt offering, the priest would also take that, that wine and he would pour it out. Either he poured out at the base of the altar or he would pour it out actually on the sacrifice itself. So what did all that mean? Well, the drink offering part of it meant this, that the person who brought the animal to be sacrificed and the drink offering, as the drink offering is being poured out, this person's attitude is total dedication to God. Right, Lord, just as like this wine is being poured out, I'm giving myself totally to you. Now with that in mind, this is what Paul's thinking. In verse 17, he says, even if I am to be poured out as a drink offering. Okay, so we in this church have studied the life of Paul a lot over the years. You guys know all the ministry, right, where Paul is just pouring himself out over and over, every day, every week, every month, every year, decades, right, pouring himself out in the ministry to God. And he's also preparing for, willing to pour himself out to God in death as a martyr for Jesus Christ. This is what's going on in his mind as he's, as he's um, chained to the Roman soldier under house arrest in Rome as he's writing to the Philippians. And, and what he's saying here is I'm, I'm being poured out. He's thinking about ministry, pouring himself out in ministry. He's thinking about pouring himself out unto death as a martyr. Question, was Paul discouraged, depressed, or down at the thought of being a martyr for Jesus Christ? No, no, look at verse 17 again. Look at the attitude. Even if I am to be poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith, I am, what's the next word? <laughs> glad and rejoice with you all. Likewise, you also should be glad and rejoice with me. And so, no, Paul's not discouraged. No, he's not depressed and no, he's not down. Why? Because listen, if you're with me, say amen here. His life had eternal significance. Amen. Paul did not describe, uh, uh, ascribe, ascribe to what I call churchianity. What's churchianity? Here's the Mike Wiggins definition. Churchianity is when you come into a, a house of worship and you sit in a row once or twice a month. And that is the extent of your Christianity. And so you go to work, check, you have movie night on Friday, check. You go to the beach on Saturday, check. You may, if you feel like it, go to a gathering at a church, check. And then, you know, you watch the ball game on Sunday, check. Listen, that life does not have eternal significance. We have got to stop ascribing to churchianity and we must embrace true Christianity. What does that mean? That means that yeah, we get into a row. Yeah, we need to be fed the word of God as the people of God. But we also need to get in a circle. 
and we need to get in a smaller group. Why? Because life is not about us. Life is about us shining as lights, doing good works so that people can see the good works that we're sharing and loving and encouraging and praying for and ministering to and loving on other people and then glorify God in heaven for our good works. That's Christianity. And so Paul says, I'm glad, I'm rejoicing, and you should rejoice with me too. Why? Because my life has eternal significance, and my death is also going to have absolute eternal significance. And just like wine is being poured out as a drink offering, I'm pouring out my life to God, to the Lord Jesus Christ, who is God. And just like wine is a symbol of joy, I'm going to be happy about it. I'm going to be filled with joy. So, in the rest of the chapter, verses 19 through 30, um, Paul, in this letter, gets personal, and he brings up two friends, Timothy and Epaphroditus. And so, what we're gonna do, since we're almost out of time, is we're just gonna read from verses 19 through 30, and I'll make few quick comments as we go and then we'll wrap it up. But please stay with me to the end. Please look at verse 19 because there's still some nuggets of truth here that we wanna mine out. He says, I hope, in verse 19, I hope in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you soon. All right, so Timothy, you guys, most of you know, Paul's young protege, his mentee. Paul's the apostle, Timothy's the pastor, the young pastor, he's been mentoring Timothy. And so I hope, Church of Philippi, in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you soon so that I too may be cheered by news of you. So the idea is there, hey Timothy, go to Philippi and then report back all the good news. Verse 20, for I have no one like him, this is powerful by the way, verse 20, I tell you, if you're a pastor or an elder or you wanna be a pastor or elder or a Christian leader, please look at verse 20. I have no one like him who will be genuinely concerned for your welfare. In other words, Paul has been meeting some of the leaders in Rome, and there's nobody in Rome that he trusts to send to Philippi because a lot of these people are all about themselves, right? Narcissists in the ministry. And so he says, you know what? I need to send Timothy. Why? Because Timothy, he just loves people. He's concerned for people. So pastors, elders, Church leaders, please hear that. We have got to be genuinely concerned for others. Otherwise, why are we in the ministry? Verse 21, for they all seek their own. All these other ministers in Rome, at least the ones that Paul met, they all seek their own interests and not those of Jesus Christ. How sad. He says, but you know Timothy's proven worth. How as a son with a father, he has served with me in the gospel. I hope, therefore, to send him just as soon as I see how it will go with me. Right, I gotta stand before Nero. We're gonna see how that goes, verse 24. And I trust in the Lord that shortly I myself will come to you. I think I'm gonna be released, and so I'll be knocking on your door someday. So Timothy, he's the first friend. He's shining. Timothy is shining like a light, reflecting the light of Jesus Christ and so does the second friend, Epaphroditus, verse 25. He says, I have thought it necessary to send to you Epaphroditus, my brother and fellow worker and fellow soldier, 
and your messenger and minister to my need. And so the church of Philippi sends Epaphroditus to Rome to visit Paul under house arrest. He brings a financial gift from the church of Philippi to Paul. We'll see that in chapter four, verse 26. For he has been longing for you all and has been distressed because you heard that he was ill. And so Christians sometimes get sick. Verse 27, indeed he was ill near to death, but God had mercy on him, and not only on him, but also on me, lest I should have sorrow upon sorrow. Verse 28, I am more eager to send him, therefore, that you may rejoice at seeing him again, and that I may be less anxious. So receive him in the Lord with all joy, and honor such men like Timothy, like Epaphroditus. Why? Why should we honor these guys? Verse 30, for he nearly died for the work of Christ, risking his life to complete what was lacking in your service to me. And so in verses 20, 19 through 30, we see three men, 17 through 30, we see three men that shone brightly to their generation. We see Paul, the great apostle, he pours himself out for the Lord like a drink offering in faithful, selfless ministry. We see Timothy, Paul's spiritual son, he's genuinely concerned about the welfare of others. That's what pastors, elders, church leaders, that's the kind of heart we need to have. And then Epaphroditus, he's a faithful servant in the church. He risks his life for the work of Jesus Christ. Those are three men who accurately reflected the light of Jesus Christ to their generation, I close with this challenge. Will you, will I, reflect the light of Jesus to our generation? What does that mean exactly? What that means is we accept the free gift of salvation, Jesus Christ, Lord of all, he's our savior. We're justified, we're saved, done deal. And then we work out our salvation through sanctification. And what, what does that mean? That means that we're reading the word of God and we're living it out like the Sermon on the Mount. And what's happening? People are seeing our good works, they're seeing the light, they're glorifying God in heaven. That's what it means to shine. And the Holy Spirit all the while lives in us giving us the power, giving us the desire to live for Jesus. And that's Philippians chapter two.